Get Stuff Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 140. And this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Andy and Melissa Dunham own and operate Grinnell Heritage Farm in Grinnell, Iowa. From corn and bean ground and no infrastructure when they started in 2006, Grinnell Heritage Farm has grown to 20 acres of vegetables marketed through a 250-member CSA, natural food stores, multiple farmers markets, and a new on-farm pizza night that they started just this year. Andy and Melissa share how they worked with New Pioneer Food Co-op to develop their skills as market farmers and to learn how to better serve the wholesale marketplace. We also dig into their CSA model, employee management on Grinnell Heritage Farm, and how they've changed their CSA to respond to the needs of both customers and employees. We also learn how Andy and Melissa developed their farm infrastructure, created environmental enhancements to change the farm ecology and to benefit the farm overall, about their organic weed control in their asparagus patch, and how they've managed repeated pesticide drift incidents on their central Iowa farm. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality composts and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com And by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSAmerica.com And by High Mowing Organic Seeds, the first independently owned, farm-based seed company proudly serving professional organic growers with a full line of 100% certified organic and non-GMO project verified vegetable, herb, flower, and cover crop seeds. HighMowingSeeds.com And before we get started today, I'd like to get a quick word from Drew Rivers about an important issue facing organic farmers. Hi, my name is Drew Rivers, and I've been a farmer in Northern California for the past 35 years. Our farm is called Full Belly Farm, and we have been certified organic since we began farming. When we started, many of the rules for certifying organic farms were just being written. At the heart of all of these rules was the soil. A critically recognized fact that all organic farming is based on healthy, fertile soil. We at Full Belly Farm have worked tirelessly all of these years to continuously improve and increase the fertility and health of our soil. There is a dangerous concept afoot that soilless farming can also become certified organic. We at Full Belly Farm are strongly opposed to this idea. We believe that the soul of organic farming will be ripped out if that is allowed and the heart of what we've been doing all of these years will be for naught. Please go to the website keepthesoilinorganic.org and learn all that you can. We are really committed to making sure that our current NOSB board that does rules and regulations for certification not allow soilless organic farming to be certified. Thank you. Andy and Melissa Dunham, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks for the invite, Chris. Yeah, thank you. So glad that you could join us today. So 
I'd like to start off by having you kind of give us the lay of the land there at Grinnell Heritage Farm. Where are you guys located? How much are you guys farming? And how are you getting it to the people who eat the food? I'll, I'll give the farm history. Um, so the farm has been in my family for 160 years now. And I'm the fifth generation farmer. So my great-great-grandfather was Levi Grinnell, and he moved here in 1857. And um, it started out as kind of a diverse farm, like almost all of them were back then, and gradually contracted down to the corn-soybean alternation that is pretty much predominant in Iowa now. And then um, I was looking for a place to farm and was actively looking in northeast Iowa where my folks live and where I grew up. Um, and my great aunt and my aunt were the farm owners at the time, and they were having a neighbor come and custom uh, plant and tend to the corn and soybean crop. And it was back before the commodity boom, so the prices were pretty low. And my great aunt was approaching um, uh, older age, and she wanted to make sure that the farm stayed in the family, so she was willing to pass it on. And that's how I got my start. So my great aunt Marion passed on a share of um, of the farm to me. And my aunt Janet was willing to rent the whole farm to the to the new farm business, Grinnell Heritage Farm, uh, which is it was originally an 80 acre parcel. Uh, we're slightly smaller than that now because of railroad and road right of ways and an old one room schoolhouse that was taken off. Um, and so we in the fall of 2006 um, put up a greenhouse all the mobile home onto the site. There'd never even been a flush toilet on the property before, even though it had been in the family for 150 years. Um, and so hauled the mobile home in and basically started kind of with a blank corn and soybean field um, slate. There was a small alfalfa field. That's kind of where we started. Um, it was relatively flat. That's where we started the, the produce production in the first, the first year was 2007. Um, began the organic transition then in 2006, and we were, we've been certified by MOSA since uh, 2009. So we started out kind of small. Um, I needed to build a packing facility, so I built a pole shed in 2007. Um, pretty much all the infrastructure was really old. There's an old barn, a few old sheds, um, but like all the water lines needed to be replaced. Like I said, there wasn't a flush toilet, so I had to put in a leaching field. I had to run all new electrical so even though I had access to the ground, there were quite a few capital improvements that needed to be made. Um, so we started out the first year, I started out the first year before Melissa and I got married uh, with about three acres of produce and sold predominantly to farmer's markets and contributed to a small local CSA here. And then in fall of 2007 or winter of 2007, we got married. And uh, 2008, we expanded a little bit. Um, I think we went up to about Five, four or five acres in 2008, and that was the flood year. So we learned a lot of um, difficult lessons that year, um, and we kind of have grown in stepwise fashion since. So it wasn't a linear growth. Um, you know, we were at like five acres, and then we kind of went to seven, and then ten. Um, I remember from going to conferences that we wanted to get out of kind of that middle zone between being small enough that that you can do all the work yourself and kind of that, that weird transition where there's no money to be made. Um, and so we kind of grew in stepwise fashion to 12 and then we're up around 20 to 25 acres now. So in 2007, we got married and I am originally from the Twin Cities up in Minnesota and moved south four hours and 
started farming here with my husband. Um, I've always had a real passion for environmental responsibility and things like that. So it was, it was kind of a, a unique match um, and not something that I could have foreseen. Um, but when we first started out, we made the decision to give the farming operation five years with both of us working on the farm without off-farm income to see if we could make make a go of it. Um, because as you know, um, it's kind of hard to make your living from the land these days, especially on a small scale um, farm enterprise. So we decided to move forward. We made it to year five and, you know, we were grateful for that. And now we're um, on year 11. Um, and so year 11, what we're looking at is a 250 member CSA. Uh, our CSA is distributed to the Des Moines area, Iowa City, Cedar Rapids, and then here in Grinnell. In addition to that, um, we've got a large amount of our business is wholesale, and then a small amount of our business is farmer's market. So I would say our income, if you looked at it as like a pie chart or something, it would go 45% of it is CSA, 45% of it is wholesale, and the remainder is like miscellaneous income and farmer's market. And Grinnell, Iowa is located kind of halfway between Des Moines and, and Iowa City, right? Yes, we are. We're almost directly in the middle of Iowa City and Des Moines, which makes it good in some respects and inconvenient in others. It's a little harder for us to get community members from those further distances to the farm, but you know, it also provides us with a centralized location to serve both of those communities. And both of those are, I mean, for cities, they're relatively small. They're certainly not a, a Minneapolis, St. Paul kind of a place. No, no, definitely not. The environment in Iowa, I would say, is is different. We're definitely adapting and learning more about food systems, but if you compare us to the Twin Cities or Madison area, I would say we're about 15 to 20 years behind. So growing up to a 20 to 25 acre vegetable farm, has, has it been fairly easy for you guys to find the markets that you needed in Des Moines, Iowa City and Cedar Rapids? Or has that been a challenge for you? I think it's been a challenge. Um, I mean, we, we do put a lot of energy into marketing, maybe not as much as is some, but, you know, it's, it's definitely a struggle to make sure that we can, you know, get rid of every last case of, you know, wholesale products that we, we can possibly produce, you know, and it's, it kind of contradicts sometimes, you know, what you'll see in the newspapers as, you know, our organic production can't keep up with organic demand, but I think it kind of goes back to maybe Iowa just needing, you know, needing more time to kind of uh, catch up essentially to what some of these other larger communities are doing and just, you know, taking that dive and making that commitment to supporting local agriculture um, because that isn't necessarily always the goal with um, a lot of our wholesale clients that are available to us. We do have, you know, a couple of really great partners in this state. New Pioneer Food Co-op is definitely one of the reasons that our farm is where it is today. Um, they taught us how to grow for wholesale success and um, quality control, case sizes, you know, and they've been very flexible and um, they've taught us a lot along the way. And I think as a beginning farm that's only 11 years old, 
you know, having a community partner like that makes a huge difference. When you say that New Pioneer helped you guys to, to learn how to grow for wholesale markets, what were the things that you guys needed to learn or needed to improve to be able to service that market the way that they wanted you to service it? Well, they, they gave us guidance on, you know, simple things like case sizes and standards, like an eggplant, you know, you can't ship them like, I don't know, a gigantic eggplant, maybe a sweet potato would be a better thought here. You know, you know, your wholesale customers don't want a nine pound sweet potato, you know, <laughs> we can grow them, but they, they don't want that, you know? Um, so I feel like they, they did their part in being open and honest and communicative which is really what a beginning farmer really needs. You know, I mean, they were there to provide us guidance and it's made a great difference for us. And when, when we made mistakes, it wasn't like the relationship was over. You know, they could say, you know, Steve in Iowa City might just say, this doesn't look very good. You know, next time we need it to look like this. You know, we could, get, we could give them, issue them a credit and then move on with, with the relationship and it didn't ruin, you know, it didn't, it didn't end the relationship. Well. And in addition to that, I think that we believe in their mission statement. I mean, they believe in local farmers, and that's why their patrons go and they shop there. And so, you know, we don't know what a standard case of sale costs. You know, when we started, we didn't know what that cost was. And we we had a relationship where we could just pick up the phone and call Steve and say, hey, Steve, you know, we're looking to start growing this for wholesale. Can you give us an idea what what the case price would be for us? And, you know, he provided that, which is extremely helpful because then as a farmer, you can figure out, hey, can I do this and be financially successful? Or maybe that's not a crop that I can afford to grow. But oftentimes, you know, you have to have a pretty decent relationship in order to just pick up the phone and and call your customer and ask them that question. How did you go about establishing that relationship in the first place? Because, you know, I'm thinking back and, and... I farmed in Iowa and most of our product went north instead of heading south to Iowa City. We were heading north up to the Twin Cities. But but there were already things happening at New Pioneer Co-op. They were already dealing with local growers at that time. How did you get them to invest in you? Well, I think we just kind of started by doing a few cold calls. And you know, as a beginning farmer, you end up getting rejected quite a lot. And so you have to have some, you know, a little bit of, little bit of thick skin, I guess, and expect to hear no sometimes, and that's all right. Um, so we just kept knocking on the door, and we went in there and said, "What are you looking for?" Because usually, or at least back then, it might not be quite so open now. But usually, there were a few crops that you could say they would tell us, "Well, nobody's doing this," and you could try it. And maybe it wasn't the most lucrative thing on our end to do, but at least it got our foot in the door, and it showed that we could provide quality products and be consistent and, you know, make deliveries on time and deliver what was ordered. And, you know, it was pre-chilled, so it had good shelf life and all those things that you have to tick off in a a wholesale, in a wholesale order, I guess, in order to make it a, make it successful and long lasting. And then as we were able to prove ourselves, you know, we we said, well, you know, we could tackle something like this. You know, they said, you know, we have a grower that's leaving this particular crop because they're retiring. Would you think about growing that for us? And our relationship grew, I think, kind of in that way. It's really interesting to me, Andy, that you started off at the farm by building a packing shed, that that was one of the first investments that you made on the farm. Did that include a cooling facility? I put in a 10 by 12 walk-in cooler initially. And I I worked at uh, your farm, you know, as an intern for a year. And that was one of the most valuable lessons I learned at Rock Spring Farm was that you really can't 
have good quality product unless you get the field heat out of it in an appropriate fashion. Um, and so we still get comments to this day, you know, at the farmer's markets that we do attend, it might be 11 o'clock and it's 85 degrees and somebody will come and pick up a bundle of leafy greens of some sort and they'll say, hey, this is still cold, you know, and everybody else's stuff is wilted and looks, you know, maybe not as good as it could. Um, and our stuff tends to hold up pretty well. You know, getting that field heat out is so important and it's, it's almost impossible to do without a walk-in cooler. Of course, you didn't seem to learn from me that a 10 by 12 cooler was going to be too small. <laughs> well, yeah, but you have to, you have to start somewhere. And I, and in, in the initial business plan, I knew that that was not the, the and so that, that is now our garlic and onion cooler. Um, and so, you know, we, we have two other coolers now and I knew kind of, we kind of knew off the, from the start that we'd be adding on. So you have to start somewhere. That's right. I mean, you talk about that importance of, of getting the product cold. Are you guys transporting your product in refrigerated vehicles as well? Yes. Yep. We sure are. We uh, started off with, um, well, we didn't have it right off the bat when we first started, but we had an old Isuzu that had a reefer unit on it. Um, but it was kind of a gas guzzler and a difficult thing to maneuver. So uh, a couple of years ago, we upgraded to a sprinter with a refrigeration unit on it. And we found that that's a lot easier for us as we're aging to get in and out of because it's lower to the ground. Um, and it's, you know, it, you can stand up in it. You can, you know, I'm fairly short, but you know, I can still raise my entire arm. So you're not stooping over in the vehicle, which has been really helpful. Well, and I know when we transitioned to the sprinter, the other thing is that you could get done with an end of a day of deliveries and not feel like you'd been beat up the way that I always did driving the box truck. Right. Yep. So you guys do the CSA, which usually involves growing 40 some odd crops. Are you providing that kind of a diversity to your wholesale markets? Um, certainly not. Um, we're doing, oh, what would you say, Melissa? We're probably growing about 15 to 20 crops that we, we feel relatively confident in an average year make us money uh, that we'll offer for wholesale. Is that a, an okay answer, Melissa? I would say that's fairly accurate. Um, what we've noticed over the years is diversity on every aspect of this business is important especially when you're looking at climate change and buying shift changes throughout the community. So we've, we've kind of kept this larger number of wholesale crops going because we've seen changes in, in, in purchasing. And because of the climate piece, you know, one year maybe we'll have a, a terrible sweet potato year, but, you know, the other, maybe the other crops help us with our cash flow that year to kind of offset that loss. So we're fairly fortunate, and I think that having that diversity is what's attributed to us still being here in year 11. It doesn't make sense. Would I love to only ship out cabbage some days? Yeah. But, you know, the easiest way isn't necessarily the most sustainable way. And when you say you're reasonably confident that those crops are making you money, is that a gut check or do you guys have a bunch of paperwork to back that up? We're, we're looking at we're looking at numbers. It's just that you know every year is variable, and so you know, like I just listened to your latest podcast or one of the latest ones about weeding, and it's you know you need a bunch of different tools to weed because your soil conditions might be drastically different from one year to the next. And so, for example, this year we're offering a lot of wholesale onions, which you know we're in good black Iowa soil, and so growing wholesale onions is not necessarily a business model that most. Uh, people would chase after in central Iowa, but the soil conditions were just right. We were really dry. 
and had just enough moisture early on that I was able to cultivate the onions and they were pretty much perfectly clean with only using mechanical cultivation, which doesn't always happen for us. And so this year, we didn't have to spend really any labor on weeding onions. And every onion that we planted turned out to be pretty much wholesale quality. And so, like, you know, we're able to sell them, you know, at wholesale prices and make, make money this year. And we'll probably plant about the same number of onions again next year, but I don't know if I'm reasonably confident we'll have the same cleanliness in the onions, I guess. And then you guys also do the CSA. You said 250 CSA shares altogether. Right. And I would say about 15 to 20% of our CSA shareholders share their share. So that kind of increases the number of families or individuals, but our shares tend to be a little bit larger. Um, And sometimes an individual can't consume an entire share on their own. And back in the day, we did try and accommodate people by doing a half share. But for us, logistically, uh, it did not work. So we went back to trying to help people find partners and just kind of sticking with what worked for us. And are you guys doing the CSA model where you're packing boxes and taking those to centralized drop sites? Yep. I think we have 14 different drop sites in the various communities that we serve. And we have a checklist. And so it's kind of a self-serve operation when we you get there and people just kind of take their stuff. We upgraded to reusable plastic boxes and that way they just stay at the drop site. So people just bring a reusable bag, they take their share contents out, transfer it to their bag, and then our, our boxes are less likely to get damaged. Um, and then we can bring them back to the farm and sanitize them. So they stay nice and clean for the next use. It's also been cheaper for us financially over buying a lot of CSAs if you get like a pre-box thing we use wax boxes and those are expensive (laughs) Um, they're very expensive and we used to operate it where you know our shareholders could take their box and then return it but the return rate was only like 60 to 70 percent and so that's a pretty great loss um, just by not having it returned and then in addition to that you know they're wax boxes. can't really clean them very well. Um, So we're pretty happy with this upgraded box system we have. What kinds of locations are you dropping your CSA shares at? Are you using members' garages? We deliver uh, to a wide range of places. Um, You know, we've got a front porch in the Cedar Rapids area. We deliver some of our shares to New Pioneer Food Co-op in Cedar Rapids, uh, Whole Foods, asked if they could be a drop site in the West Des Moines area a few years ago. Um, we try and do it in places that are convenient for people, someplace that people will already be going to. So it's um, not necessarily something that they'll have to do and go completely out of their way. Um, and we, we try and do this because of retention. You know, everybody's got a busy life and I think the easier you can make it on on your shareholders, the better off everybody will be. Um, but yeah, anywhere from a front porch to we do have someone's garage in Iowa City to, you know, grocery stores. And then I noticed that you guys offer a spring share, a summer share, a winter share, and a student share. I thought that was an interesting twist on the CSA concept, that student share. Yeah, well, because we serve a lot of college communities, uh, we've got the Grinnell College. We actually border um, the Gr- Grinnell College property here in Grinnell. 
and we wanted to be able to find a way to serve, you know, the, the professors and students that maybe would leave for the summer, but, you know, return in mid-August and want fresh food. And so this was one way to be able to serve those populations. And how does that work out with your crop production? I would think that it would be hard to have a, a big jump in the middle of the season in something like how many bags of salad mix you need or how many bunches of kale you're putting in the shares. It's actually pretty great um, just because of the growing season in Iowa. Um, you know, April, May, June starts off kind of slow. July, you start to pick up, you're losing a lot of your spring crops. And then come August, like we have entirely way too much food. Um, and so adding some shareholders on at that point is, is actually a benefit for our farm. Are you holding crops over the winter for that spring share? Well, we do some. So like we might leave some parsnips in the ground or um, we typically will do, you know, kind of how you did where you overwintered carrots and then would sell them at the spring farmer's market. We do a a little bit of that, um, but but most of it's coming from outside. What other kinds of crops are you including in that? In the spring share. So that would be like asparagus and radishes, uh, leafy greens like spinach and lettuce. See what else goes in there, Melissa? We have a few root crops, you know, like the parsnips and the carrots. Um, some years we'll overwinter beets if we have a really nice beet crop. Other leafy greens, things like that. The spring share is pretty light. So if you look at the price per week on that, um, usually we're, you know, in the month of May, we're mostly concerned with field work and getting transplants in the ground. And we try to make it so the share only takes up maybe about a day or a day and a half of the crew time. Uh, so we can be doing field work for the, for the rest of the time. And it's mostly for people, you know, it's kind of to get them used to, you know, coming to pick up a share or if they really want that, you know, the first asparagus tends to be a quite a hit. So. Asparagus isn't an easy crop to do organically. I, you actually helped plant our asparagus field at Rock Spring Farm, and I would be embarrassed to, well, I guess I am embarrassed to admit what happened to that. Are you guys successful with your asparagus crop? Yeah, um, I feel like yeah, we've, I feel like we've got that down pretty pretty well for the most part. So we'll um, uh, we end up planting a cover crop of soybeans into it just immediately post harvest season. So I'll go in and I'll I flail mow the patch down by you know by the time you're done picking in mid to late June. Um, you have a few straggly asparagus uh, ferns basically sticking up that you missed, and then weeds that are you know out, depending on how many times you float mow it. Um, you've got weeds that are anywhere from ankle to knee high. So I'll go in and I'll flail mow that really low to the ground. And then I take my rototiller and I drop it as low as I dare to, I guess, is how I'd phrase that. <laughs> and I rototill over the top of the bed, um, mostly trying to like knock the weed pressure down some. And then I go in and I broadcast spread about 400 pounds of soybeans to the acre. And then I'll go through and I'll I'll harrow that relatively aggressively to kind of pull some of that weed material up and lightly bury the soybeans. And we time that. We'll actually time our last asparagus harvest to when the rain is coming. I want to do that about three to five hours before it starts raining. And then the idea is is that the soybeans emerge and they're they're so thick that the cotyledons of the soybeans actually actually help to suppress weed like you're shading out the weeds with the cotyledons. Um, and it works pretty well if you get decent rain. This year it was so dry that they germinated the soybeans did, and then they didn't do very much because there wasn't much moisture for them to drill down to. Um, but 
it, most years it works pretty well. So our, our patch is now 11 years old. And if you go out there and look at it right now, you can, it looks like an asparagus field. So oh. there are some weeds in it, but it's not too bad. Nice. Nice. And, and the soybeans, obviously, from what you're saying, don't shade out the asparagus ferns. They're able to jump up and compete with that. Oh yeah. The asparagus will go like a, a, a nice thing too, with that system, the asparagus will actually put on some really nice green growth like now. So like, we have this light, it'll put on like another foot of lush green growth. Cause I would, I would imagine the, the soybeans are probably putting maybe 15 or 20 pounds of nitrogen to the acre in but the soybeans are stressed enough that they aren't doing all that well because they're getting shaded out by the asparagus. You're not really, you're probably not fixing all that much nitrogen, but you're getting some, and I think the asparagus does benefit from it. And Andy, this was tip that you learned from the Moses Conference a few years ago, right? Uh, yeah, almost 10 years ago. So at the Moses Conference, I ran into a Michigan grower who was, we just talked after one of the sessions, and I was saying, well, I'm putting this asparagus patch in. And he gave me this tip, and I have no idea who he was. And if you're listening, whoever you were, thank you very much. I think it goes without saying those opportunities at the conferences that, that the time you spend talking to other growers is as important or even more important than the time you spend in the workshops. Definitely. Are you guys doing much high tunnel production? Um, not, not too terribly much. We have a, about a 3,000 square foot uh, heated greenhouse space uh, where we start transplants. And I used, we used to do some in-ground production in there. Um, but now we're growing enough transplants that that's actually a little on the small side, especially through May and June. And then that then is where we'll cure garlic and onions with a shade cloth on it. And then we also cure our sweet potatoes in there. So the garlic and onions are uh, cleaned out and then we'll, we'll put sweet potatoes in there and then uh, take the shade cloth off and crank the heat up. Um, and then we do have a 3000 square foot um, high tunnel. That we typically will do some, you know, fall greens in or, you know, winter greens in and then, you know, maybe cherry tomatoes or something like that in the summer. Um, but we just had a micro storm or something that blew the plastic off of that. So I think I'm just going to leave it uncovered for the winter just to hopefully allow the soil in there to get some actual moisture instead of irrigation water. So yeah, we don't do too terribly much covered stuff. We're, we're at the very top of our watershed, um, which is a blessing and a curse. So I've heard other farmers talk about, um, I believe Dave Perkins said something about make, making sure you find farmland that is suitable for vegetable production. Um, we have farmland that is very, very well suited for vegetable production, but we don't have, we really don't have a great source of high volume water. So we don't have the ability anywhere on the farm to dig like, you know, a six or seven acre uh, irrigation pond um, because of just the lay of the land that just doesn't work anywhere. And then to drill a well, you know, we did drill an irrigation well last year, but we just can't get the volume to do like a, you know, a, a walking gun or something like that. We can only get about 30 gallons per minute. Um, and so we're, we're relying mostly on drip irrigation. And so, you know, the lay of the land is such that we're at the top of our watershed and so we do catch some wind. And so doing more high tunnels is something I, I might be interested in, but I think we have to go with much beefier models. And many people get by with just because of where we're situated. And I mean, 20 acres of ground is a lot of ground to be covering with just drip irrigation. Are you guys laying that on top of the soil? Are you burying it down in there so that it's not blowing around in those same winds that would cause you trouble with the high tunnels? Yeah, so we, we bury pretty much all of it. The only time we don't is if we're, you know, trying to trying to germinate things like carrots or, you know, maybe parsnips or something that 
it's a little, you know, it'd be difficult to do with buried drip. So we just, yeah, we bury it. We can cultivate right over the top of it. And then we know we don't have adequate, um, we do, we have two wells that we can irrigate out of. So we can irrigate about two acres at a pop, but we don't really have the ability in a drought to irrigate all of the ground that we're doing. So at the beginning of the season, we prioritize and there are certain crops that we just say, we're not going to irrigate these. And that, you know, if they, if it's really, really dry, we might lose those crops. And we, we know that up front. So an example, this spring, we had a, a pretty bad spring cabbage crop because usually you can rely on on rainwater to get a good cabbage crop here and this year we just didn't have it and so we and we, we had chosen not to irrigate it and by the time we needed to irrigate it we were already irrigating other things and so it just turned out to be kind of a bad spring cabbage year so yeah i would think that would be really hard with i mean again you talk about climate change i'm thinking about the drought of 2012 that was so bad across so much of the midwest how did you guys survive that um, well, I w- we were dry and so we we're irrigating out of our well and we do have a small farm pond. We basically drained that that year. Um, and you know, we just kind of prioritized and said, these are the crops that are going to get irrigation. And so, you know, we did do some, re- you know, some irrigation that was basically just to keep the plants alive, um, hoping to get some rain and then, you know, never really came. So it's one of those things you win some and you lose some. But I think it kind of relates back to a comment that I made earlier in, you know, diversity. You know, some of the crops fared better with the weather that year over others. And had we not had that diversity, like that could have been the year that broke our farm. So I, I, I do think that that diversity is what has kept us going all these years. And it's it's a lot of work. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, <laughs> having uh, that many crops is, is a challenge. But I think given the current climate that we're seeing, it's 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 really important. When you talk about burying the drip lines out in the field so that you can cultivate over them. So these, this is this is standard drip tape with the emitters every 12 or 18 or 24 inches. And, and you're actually putting that in the soil and then not covering the soil with plastic. This is actually what you might have under any of your crops. Right. And what we do, we do have a raised bed shaper plastic mulch layer for that we use for some crops. So like some of the cucurbits we'll do that with. And in part, that's because of the lessons we learned in 2008. We are like probably seven or eight acres of our our produce ground is like pancake flat. Um, And so in a really, really heavy rain, especially back in 08, before our soils improved, um, the water, like the soil just wasn't able to take as much rain as we got at one time. We had like, I think, three different 13-inch rain events over the course of like one or two days we had like we got 13 inches of rain i think on three different occasions in 2008 um over the course of like like 24 hours or so each each event um and so we had you know crops standing in water and so we we put some raised beds in after that just because we recognized that the ground couldn't if we're going to have 13 inches of rain and we're pancake flat it just can't absorb or run off fast enough so we're able to bury the drip tape in that system and then we also have a toolbar on the back of the tractor uh, that we can just, you know, drive in road gear and it puts you know, one or two lines of drip tape or whatever we want right down, right where we want it. So, and we do that pre-plant. And are you burying that directly under where you intend to put the crop plants? Uh, typically not. So the, um, so like an example might be like, say a broccoli, we're on a, we have a 60 inch bed system. And so we'll do two rows of broccoli per bed and we'd put it right down the middle. The drip tape might be eight inches or 12 inches away from the plant, kind of depending on, on what we're doing. And how deeply are you burying the drip tape? Well, we usually go about two and a half inches. 
And that's enough to keep it out of the way of your cultivator knives. Yep. Two and a half. It might be three inches. I mean, like we're go, you'll set it down and just kind of drive. So. <laughs> and you said raised bed production on some of your farm, but, but not on all of your farm. No. So like sweet potatoes would be on raised beds. Um, we do tomatoes on raised beds. Um, but some of the crops that we've identified over the years that seem to perform better with either having like a little bit of extra heat, like, you know, sweet potatoes, we've, we've done trials where we've done them on flat ground, on raised beds with plastic, on raised beds without plastic, on raised beds with paper mulch. You know, we did a bunch of trials um, uh, through Practical Farmers of Iowa years ago, and the raised beds on plastic mulch did, uh, you know, hands down had the best yield. So, and we just kind of look at yield, yield data and see how the crop looks and, and make adjustments on the fly. So we've added, over the years, we've added things to what we've done on plastic culture and we've taken things off that, you know, we didn't think was worth it or didn't seem to work. You talked about having 20 to 25 acres of, of vegetable crops. Are you managing additional land in cover crop acres as well? Uh, in cover crop acres, no. So the, the remainder of the farm is planted to fruit and nut trees. We have probably about two and a half to three acres of fruit and nut trees, about five acres of wildlife habitat that we planted. Um, and then we have a beef cow herd, a grass-fed beef cow herd um, that we mostly manage for fertility in the vegetable production system. Uh, and they're on pasture right now. And we have some hay ground. So we have about 20, what, 22 acres of 20 or 22 acres of pasture, I think, off the top of my head. And then um, like a, about the same amount of hay ground. And then we buy, we're fortunate enough that one of the neighbors up the road is also certified organic. And she recently sold her beef cow herd. Um, and so we've been buying for a few years. We've been buying organic hay from just up the road to supplement our, our meager hay field. So. And when you say that the cattle are part of the fertility plan for the vegetables, how are you incorporating them into that? Is, is that? Are you rotating them through those fields or is it just collecting their manure over the winter when you have them in a shed or, or in a confined area? Yeah, we do. We do them in a, a deep bedded pack for the winter, and then we'll push that up and let it go through a heat, and then we'll haul it as manure in the fall. So um, we, we typically are trying to haul that on living cover crops, like either on like a stand of rye and vetch or you know oats and clover or something like that. Um, and we'll typically we're able to cover. It depends on the year and how much hay we decide to waste, but we usually can cover about half to two thirds of our vegetable ground in the given year. Um, and it doesn't work for everything, you know. Like you still have kale and and Brussels sprouts out in the field at the time that you'd be hauling that. So those fields obviously don't get it that, that calendar year. So in the, in the rotation, we kind of keep note of that. And, and the crops that don't need that, you know, don't need that preceding manuring or whatever that, you know, that's typically where they'll go in the rotation. So, you know, sweet potatoes you want, like we actually need forest ground for sweet potatoes that we can give them. Um, so we'll, we'll follow the sweet potatoes will go either where we messed up on a weed control, if, you know, on a weed control, um, for a year or, or we'll put it somewhere where we know we don't have the best fertility. And then with 25 acres of vegetables, that's a lot of work. Where are you guys getting your employees and how many people do you have working on the farm with you? All you know. Um, we have what we call our core six, which is now kind of our core seven. Um, and so we've got six employees that come back year after year. Um, and we really structure our field crew um, to 
highlight their strengths and utilize each one of one of their strengths because each individual brings a lot to the table in a different way. But our our core is to try and keep these individuals coming back year after year because, you know, as you know, if you're trying to grow 40 or 50 different crops, I mean, that it's not the same as growing one or two crops. It's a lot easier to, you know, remember what to do every year if you're only doing one or two crops. But, you know, growing 40 or 50 different things takes a while to bring somebody up to speed on, you know, how to harvest it. Or, you know, you start off actually, you know, how to transplant it, you know, how far apart are they to how to harvest it, to how to wash it and pack it. You know, that takes time. And so we've learned that in order for us to be sustainable, we can't keep retraining people. Um, so that's kind of where the direction we've gone in. So we'll have those core seven on with us from February, mid-March, all the way through December. And then we kind of dial it back again in January and February when we're just shipping out our roots to wholesale customers. And then in the peak of the season, like June, July, August, we'll pick up some additional labor to kind of help us get through the height of the season. And your core six, are are those locals there in Grinnell? Yeah. Well, four of the six live here in the community. And then one couple drives to and from Des Moines. Is the same thing true of the rest of the crew that kind of rounds that out during the high season? Are those primarily kids coming from Grinnell College or are they coming from away? Every now and then, you know, we we get asked to do like an internship. So this year we had an ISU student come to us. So we brought her on board uh, for several weeks. Um, we have had Grinnell College students here for several weeks in the past, but oftentimes we'll get a couple of high school students that are interested in helping. And they're all local and from the community. Nobody in that pool is really traveling much outside of the town of Grinnell. Kind of nice to be located right on the edge of town for those purposes. Yeah, we're extremely lucky. I mean, you know, we're surrounded by town on three sides. Um, so, I mean, it's kind of a, it's a good thing and a bad thing all at the same time, but for convenience purposes for our staff, it's, it's pretty great. And you said that you put a real emphasis on keeping the core six, now core seven, coming back year after year. What do you do to help ensure that that happens? Well, we give them titles like Captain Awesome. Um, <laughs> and I'm not kidding. No, we don't, we don't, we don't do that just to make Eric happy. But, you know, I, we, we've, we've cultivated a kind of a community here on the farm where, you know, they all like to get along. And we have found through the hiring process over the last 10 or 11 years that the people who stay and the people who have become our core are not people who are necessarily just coming here to punch in and punch out. These are individuals who are invested in the type of farming that we're doing. These are people that really like food. They love to share recipes and ideas. Uh, they'd have a genuine concern and appreciation for the environment. Um, so it, it goes beyond a paycheck. I mean, these people are invested in, in the farm itself. And I think that by doing what we're doing, the way that we're doing it is really what's kept them around. You, you have also added, though, a number of things, I think, that have made it more retention friendly, though, that you should probably share. So, I mean, we're not we're not offering minimum wage. Um, you know, we're, we can't offer, 
you know, 40 or $50 an hour or $20 an hour at this point. I wish we could because they're well worth it. Um, but we do try and compensate them in ways and give them things that maybe a cash on the cash side, we can't. So everybody on our crew gets a CSA share. Um, so they're eating the same things we are. And there are tons of other, you know, leftovers on the farm and they can glean all that they want. Um, so, you know, Eric and Rach, for example, have probably put away two bushel of eggplant in their freezer for the winter. Uh, Daniel and Leticia have probably put away a, a bushel of habaneros, you know, I mean, so it's kind of nice to have that unique quality and, and able to get it, you know, from our farm. And in addition to that, we've offered paid time off um, because of the new Food Safety and Modernization Act and the rules that come with it. We felt like it was only fair to offer our employees paid time off, especially with the rules regarding, you know, sick employees, you know, they just can't work. So we really didn't want people to not feel like they couldn't report that they were sick because it was a financial barrier, you know. Um, so we thought that by offering this, it would be a good, you know, compromise in hopes that that would keep our, our, our food safe in addition to letting them know that, you know, we genuinely care about you. You know, if you're not feeling well, or if you need to go on a vacation or want to go on a vacation, you know, we support that too. Another thing that we implemented, it took us a while to figure it out. You know, when you're an entrepreneur, you, you sometimes forget that you, you're kind of making up the rules, you know, in a lot of ways. And so I think it wasn't until year four or five that it dawned on me that, Hey, we could, we could go on vacation, you know, and at the height of the season, it sounds crazy, but we felt like from a family standpoint, we were missing out on getting our kids out of the state and going and doing things that other normal people might be doing in July or something. And so this, this last year, we implemented having at least a four-day vacation or time off for each of our core six um, because we recognize that by the time July or August hits, everybody's extremely tired. And so by having that mini break for everybody, it, it really, I think it helps. And that break is something that you guys take as well. Yeah, we, we learned to appreciate it. We found that our own sustainability, you know, and our own drive was re-energized by taking that mid-July break. You know, so now what we've done is we've worked in a CSA hiatus week. We noticed that a lot of people would be traveling or gone on the 4th of July. So they wouldn't, you know, our CSA pickup that week would be lower. You know, we noticed that people were out of town. So we just took it and we said, okay, now we're going to have a break. No CSA shares are delivered the week of the 4th of July. That gives us flexibility to either, you know, go camping or do something with family or, you know, play catch up after June on the farm. And so we recognize that by us getting this break, it rejuvenates us. And we're hoping that by giving that to our crew members, that that's also giving them the same opportunity. With that, we're going to stop here, get a quick word from a couple of sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Andy and Melissa Dunham from Grinnell Heritage Farm. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company. Vermont Compost Potting Soils promise you that they're going to have all of the complex humus-bound and glomalin-bound biota and proteins and nutrients that you need, and they promise that there's not going to be any of the genetic material like seeds, weed seeds, that are going to be viable to compete with or confuse your efforts. And that, of course, is a crazy, unnatural condition, but soil, of course, is putting things in pots. 
Vermont Compost uses art and science to imitate nature and to support plants within this unnatural condition. And that's why Vermont Compost provides an ideal medium to grow high-quality organic transplants. And while it's not all about saving money, Vermont Compost's fall pre-buy program can help you get what your plants need at the best price with the best shipping options. Don't miss out. Vermont Compost Fall Pre-Buy Program runs September 21st to December 21st. Taking care of growers by taking care of transplants since 1992. VermontCompost.com Perennial support is also provided by BCS America. A BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need with PTO-driven attachments like the rototiller, flail mower, power harrow, rotary plow, snow thrower, log splitter, and more. You name it, and you can probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor, and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four-wheel farm tractors, and it has many of the same features. I've used other tillers and mowers, and I spent most of the time thinking about how much easier it would have been with a BCS. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments plus videos of BCS in action. All right, and we're back with Andy and Melissa Dunham from Grinnell Heritage Farm right on the edge of Grinnell, Iowa. Andy, when when you were telling us about getting the farm started, you mentioned that the packing shed was one of the first things that you built. Can you tell us more about what you built at that time and how that's developed into the present? Yeah, so the, the packing shed I put up... Um, was just a, a simple pole shed. It was a 30 by 45 foot pole shed with a 12 foot sidewall. And then we just put the, um, an insulated pad in the corner where the 10 by 12 walk-in cooler went. We had a garage door on each side of it. So we had kind of an incoming door and an outgoing door. And it kind of served uh, as storage and you know wash station, pack station and all that kind of stuff all at once for the most part for the first few years. And then uh, we, we knew kind of from the get-go that we wanted to scale up. And so we or I situated the packing shed in such a way that I thought, you know, maybe we could just build off the west and either knock a wall out or, you know, we made it so that, you know, that it's a pole shed so the, the one wall wasn't structural. And so we thought we could, you know, knock a wall out and maybe expand in that direction if we wanted to. Um, and before we expanded, we decided, well, we better prove to ourselves that we actually need to expand and we can actually grow as much produce as we think we can. And so for a couple of years, we would rent refrigerated semi-trailers in the fall and fill those and then use that like as, a, as an expanded cooler um, up until about Christmas. And then everything, you know, by Christmas time, hopefully we'd, we'd sold enough stuff that we could cram everything into the 10 by 12 and then get by. Um, and then we decided to make the leap in 2011 built the shed in first shed in 07 and by 2011 we'd expanded and we decided that we we needed to learn more about other you know other farms that were had undergone expansion before and other farms that were kind of the same size that we were hoping to become and so we made some phone calls and emails or melissa did and we went up and we took a little extended weekend trip up into wisconsin and we visited was it four farms melissa i think it was five but they were all pretty much larger than than we are. So I would say if we have any words of advice, you know, this is definitely one of them that I would look back on the last 11 years again and and say, why are you still standing? And this would be one of them, this experience and just going and seeing some of these larger farms and soaking up what they had going on. Um, We learned a lot on that trip. And we we went late enough in the season that we knew that we weren't going to be crimping, or at least we hoped we weren't going to be crimping their style, I guess. So it was, you know, late fall. 
all of the farms were very open and willing to share and gave us more time than we expected them to give us. And they kind of all let us know what some of the pitfalls were they'd encountered and gave us words of wisdom. And we incorporated an awful lot of what they had to say into designing our packing house. So what were some of the pitfalls that you avoided and and the solutions that you came up with for avoiding them? Uh, So like one of the easiest ones to think about would be uh, like you go into a lot of packing houses and you'll see hoses and or electrical cords kind of strewn all over. And so we did an overhead water line and just dropped down uh, connectors so that we can we can hook up um, like a barrel washer or a brush line or, you know, if we want to run the power washer somewhere. Um, we don't have to navigate around hoses because they're all ab- above our heads. And then same with the electrical. So we can plug stuff in from above and not have to worry about tripping over electrical cords or those kinds of things. Um That'd be one pretty good example. Another one is like having adequate floor drainage. A lot of the packing sheds that you see oftentimes will have water pool in them, um, you know, because the drain either is not large enough to handle the volume of water or just because of the dirt and debris and, you know, plant matter that comes off during a normal wash might plug a smaller floor drain up. Um, So we ended up putting in um, like a, a floor drain that was adequate for the volume of water that we needed. Um, and then we had that go out into a settling basin so we could reclaim all of the soil and plant debris and stuff. We just drop a sump pump into it and then drive that, made it big enough that the tractor loader can fit in there so I can just drive the tractor right down in and scoop it out and clean it out a couple, you know, a couple times every summer or whatever. And then we put that on the vegetative compost pile. Other things on the list that, you, that we picked up? You know, I think it's, it's simple things. So when I look at the packing shed and the function of it, it's really about organization and efficiency. And so you got to really put that hat on and find the very small ways that can improve both of those things. And the things that Andy just spoke about are definitely true. But even, you know, how you're accessing your cooler, you know, and how the doors open in which way they open, um, where your doors are to get into the shed and exit the shed, you know, all of those little things really add up. Um, there isn't a huge profit margin in this type of farming, um, which is fine, you know, but you got to try and make up those little pieces everywhere you can. And so I think if you're not into designing or efficiency and function, you know, find somebody that can do that for you or, or definitely visit other farms because we have seen that that has greatly helped us over the last several years since we built this new shed. And are there things we would change? Sure. Um, I wish, you know, we had twice the amount of cooler space already, but you kind of got to grow with with what you have available to you, I guess. When I asked Dan Gunther how big of a cooler I should build on my farm, he told me that when he had asked an experienced farmer that question when he was getting started, that the answer was 100 by 200 because you just (laughs) really can't build it big enough. No, I mean, one of the farms that we went to visit in the Madison area was Harmony Valley. I mean, and Richard was kind. He gave us a couple of hours of his time. And I just remember my jaw dropping with every cooler he showed us. I was like, this is awesome. I would, you know, and even just his box storage facility was like a beautiful big shed, you know, like it would be ideal to have multiple sheds for multiple things. But, you know, you got to you got to get there. Richard's been doing it for a number of years, you know, but he he clearly has it figured out. You talked about quality being really important to your operation and and the importance of removing the field heat and maintaining that cold chain. What kinds of equipment and tools are you guys using to 
get the produce ready for market? Um, so for the most part, if it's a leafy green or something, you know, it's being bunched in the field and then we'll uh, run it through a dunk tank, um, you know, to help hydro cool and, and, um, and then we'll put it into the cooler. So you know, some of the evaporative, the evaporative cooling will happen in the cooler. Um, for roots and things like that, we run them through a, a barrel washer. Uh, for things like, you know, eggplant and peppers and other things like that, we have a brush wash line. We really don't, don't have tons and tons of equipment, you know, relatively standard fare for, for a Midwestern packing shed, I would say. I'm really curious because you said that you guys are sanitizing all of those CSA totes when you bring them back to the farm. That ends up being a lot of tote sanitizing, uh, especially if you add in your harvest containers and your packing containers. How are you guys getting that job done? We'll set up a wash line and, you know, have hoses and brushes and stuff and we'll kind of hose out and scrub out and then we spritz it with sanitate. It's definitely not my favorite thing to do. And this year, especially because we, that typically becomes a rainy day job. And we've had almost no rainy days this year. It has been, there have been many CSA box packing mornings where I'm out there like kind of frantically with the crew trying to wash up 200 boxes because we're short. It gets done, but yeah, it definitely, it it does add to the work. And how many of those reusable CSA boxes do you guys have to service 250 shares? We bought 750 of a larger container and then another 750 of a smaller container. Because the season, you know, as it progresses, you graduate from a smaller box to a bigger box, depending on the time of the time of the year. So we and we got some advice from other farmers that use this type of box. They suggested having at least two, if not three, for every shareholder. So we went a little on the high side when we ordered them, but we kind of we didn't want to be forced to reorder more if our CSA grew, you know, in a year or two. So we kind of just took that initial leap and purchased a whole bunch at once. Then you guys also have this year a, a new enterprise on the farm, right? We certainly do. <laughs> so tell us about that. Well, so as you know, Trump has been elected president of the United States. It, it really was the tipping point that made us jump in and really start heavily researching the wood-fired pizza oven enterprise. We had um, listened to a couple of speakers up at the Moses Conference a few years back and, you know, it kind of set a seed in in our minds. But it really wasn't until after this last election cycle when we saw in our small rural community the divide. And as you know, you can only get so many people to come to your farm by luring beets and chard and, you know, farm field days. Um, It only draws so many people there. And so what we wanted to do was kind of reunite our community. Um, We've got a really liberal college, you know, as a neighbor, but we've also got a lot of other people who are on the conservative side of things. And we've got a lot of corn and soybeans around us and a lot of conventional farming. And it's not that we are against um, any of these people. It's just that I think that the way our community kind of came through this election, you know, it was very divided. And I recognize that I think we all have a lot more in common than we think we do. And so with this enterprise, we are hoping to open the doors um, to our community members. And we're like, well, how do we do that? You know, not everybody eats pizza in charge, but everybody likes pizza. So we decided to go forward and we did some research. We went to Northern California, um, to Mignani, and took a, a, a pizza making class 
And then we also consulted with one of the other local um, wood-fired pizza oven enterprises over in the Kelowna area, Anna's Cut and Garden. And so between taking those two classes and consulting, you know, we felt like, hey, we could we can try and do this. And so we did it for that reason. But we also recognized that Mother Nature is pretty volatile and it's nerve wracking farming the way we do. You know, you're kind of at the mercy of Mother Nature and in a bad year, it could be really bad. And so having a different enterprise that is more shelf stable, I guess, was attractive to me. It would be something that I would enjoy doing. You know, Andy, you like managing the oven. Um, he's really excellent yeah, at getting I, I do actually do quite enjoy man- managing the oven. We're, we're we're tired though, so like what the down the we're we're doing all of this. So we kept the farm kind of on the same track that it was on, and we've added this pizza enterprise on, and we've just told ourselves we're going to be tired, and we're tired. <laughs> we're, we're tired, but I think you know I think if you look at the trend for farms and diversification, you know diversification doesn't just mean the stuff that's going in the ground. It means like the entire operation and every like multiple enterprises, you know, and there's a lot happening around agritourism. And, you know, in addition to wanting to, you know, provide people with good food, we also wanted more people to come to our farm naturally. So on our wood fired pizza nights we we do several um, wagon ride farm tours around the farm. And one of our core six is Eric, and he gives these tours, and he is so excited. He's he's also the gentleman I told you is Captain Awesome. He's just a really excited individual, and his job is to kind of highlight the environmental pieces that we've worked into the farm. And so we're trying to bring people in to show them that, hey, there there is a different way to farm the land. You know, there are different opportunities out there for people. So it's you know, and we're trying to build community, and it is, Andy. It is a lot of work, um, but <laughs> and I'm I'm not down I'm not downplaying it too much. But yeah, it, it's uh, I've enjoyed having it, and so Melissa ends up doing you know much of the promotional stuff, and then uh, we've been lucky enough to find somebody in town who has some restaurant background, and she's helping with you know food prep and all of that kind of stuff. And then on pizza nights, um, you know, Melissa's kind of managing the flow of everything, and then I I'm actually slinging pizzas into and taking them out of the oven and it is it, I, I'll admit I'm, I am having fun with that so although last the last time we did this it was busy enough that we actually met so the manufacturer had like a number of pizzas per hour advertised with each oven that you could buy and we actually hit that two a week and a half ago so we're for the whole time we're doing 120 pizzas an hour wow it's like the equivalent of running out of cooler space two months into your farming operation <laughs> It's not cool. <laughs> but, and that's a lot of pizza. I mean, hundred. I mean, if you're doing 120 pizzas an hour in a town of eight or 9,000 people, I mean, that's, that's not nothing. No, we, we, if you count the kids, like we're, we're typically having any, you know, what, what we're asked, it's hard to get an exact count necessarily, but we're, we're figuring two to 300 people a night is typically who, you know, how many people are coming out. What kind of licensing did you have to go through to be able to do a pizza night on your farm in Iowa? So we, we probably should set the stage a little bit, Melissa, just because so when we built the packing shed in 2011, we were still living in the mobile home. And so we didn't have an office space for the farm. So we built an off an insulated spot 
off the side of the packing facility that was our office for a number of years. And we knew that we were planning on building a house on the farm eventually. So we wanted to not have it just be an office space. So when we built the, the thing in 2011, we put in all of the infrastructure that you'd need for a licensed kitchen. So we had like an oven plug and we had three drain hookups or three water hookups for hot and cold water. We had the water heater already. We had a floor drain. All the walls were, uh, we could sanitize all the walls. Um, and so we had this space that we could convert into a licensed kitchen. So then, I mean, it, there's a lot to learn, but that's that's part of why we wanted to consult with somebody who was local, who knew, you know, some of the local rules. And Melissa Berman, who came on staff and who was, you know, basically managing this new enterprise for us, um, she had already had a a licensed kitchen in operation in our community. So she really knew the food safety rules and things like that. So that has definitely helped, you know, finding somebody that's got that background already is, is great. But yeah, we had to, you know, have an inspector come out and, and, you know, go through, um, you know, another certification and, and get a license just like any other restaurant would. And you said that you did this in an effort to build community, not just within kind of the alternative organic hippie types, but to reach across that divide. Has that worked? Yeah. I mean, our community is, you know, I'm, I'm going to sound redundant to all the Grinnellians who have heard me give this speech before, but the Grinnell community, a lot of people think Grinnell College is going to be a liberal community. Well, it is in a certain sense, but we've got three different populations, kind of sections of our community. We've got the people that are here strictly for the college. And then we've got another group in our community that is, is from here. They grew up here and they were born and raised here. And then you've got this like weird third circle that's a little bit smaller. And that's Andy and myself. You know, we didn't grow up here. We're not affiliated with the college. And we're just kind of these outsiders, you know. And it's been really challenging to kind of integrate into these other bubbles. And so, yeah, that was a huge piece in why we wanted to do this. And I would say we have been very successful in getting those members to the table. The neat thing is, is you can just, it's a totally new way of being creative. You know, you can think of different things to do to get different populations to the farm. You know, not everybody's interested in the grass-fed beef or, you know, pork from B&B farms. You know, maybe that's not the reason they're coming here. Maybe they're coming here because they love that their kids can just run around. Or, you know, um, I, don't, I don't know. You know, there are a lot of different reasons to come out. But we've also encouraged different people in, in coming out. Like this next Friday on the 22nd, it's our, our next pizza night falls after the International Day of Peace, which is on Thursday. And because of everything that has happened we decided to do peace and happiness, um, which is kind of our thing is the happiness, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a happiness, you know, only with pizza, obviously. Um, but we're integrating peace into it and we're going to have about 10 different lantern sites, um, lighting sites, and we're going to light off peace lanterns over our community. Um, I'm really hoping we don't start anything on fire. We've never done this before. But by doing an activity like that, which is a little outside the norm, um, I think we're going to see other people from the community kind of gravitate this way or wonder what's going on, you know. Um, and so it's kind of like doing these odd or unique or inviting things that I'm hoping will bring our community together. I love that. I was really struck by your happiness. I'm not quite <laughs> sure how to pronounce that, but 
you know, it's, it's H-A and then P-I-Z-Z-A and then N-E-S-S. It seems like you guys have a lot of fun with your marketing. We do. Yeah, we do. I mean, why not have fun? <laughs> Otherwise, it's just a, a job. <laughs> you know, you might, you can, the neat thing is, it's like once you're an entrepreneur, you're like, yeah, there's a lot of work. But slowly after you've been doing it for a while, it dawns on you, you're like, hey, I can kind of do what I need to or do what I want to. And can you can be creative and, you know, you can think outside the box. And I guess that's one of the pieces of this job that I really enjoy, you know. The sky is kind of the limit. You can think about anything. And, you know, as long as it's financially sustainable, you can probably pull it off. You mentioned children on the farm. How many kids do you guys have? We have three children. I have a son who I had before Andy and I met. And so he was nine when we moved to Grinnell. And then Andy and I have two daughters together. Uh, Emma is eight and in third grade. And Leonora is a five-year-old in kindergarten. That's a lot of kid to be weaving into a farm operation. How do you guys handle that? Well, we're, we're pretty fortunate in that my aunt Janet, who allowed for the farm to um, to kind of allowed me to get my start farming here. I guess she is still working with us full time, and she is now kind of like a farmer emeritus status, I guess, and which includes a fair bit of kid time. So she will she'll run you know kids home from school for us. And, you know, if we need to go, both of us have to go to a farmer's market or something like that, you know, she'll be with the girls. Um, but they do, they spend quite a bit of time outside with us. So Emma's learning to drive tractor. Um, Leonora desperately wants to, but can't reach the pedals. Um, you know, so <laughs> like I remember my childhood growing up learning to drive tractor at the age of eight. And, you know, why not? So. Yeah, we're, I mean, in, in addition to Aunt Janet, you know, we've got, we've got some awesome crew members. So when we were writing our employee manual a number of years ago, like one of the rules, I mean, Chris, you had young kids on the farm. One of the rules is like, like Leonora, when she was two or three, like she would disappear. You know, we'd be in the packing shed doing something. And all of a sudden we'd be like, oh, where'd she go? And like, I wanted to get like a GPS tracking device on this kid. You know, Emma would stick around, but, but not Leo. And so um, one of the things in our employee manual that we did was like, we, you know, you have to make eye contact. So the crew could take them out to the field anytime they wanted to. but they had to make eye contact with like Andy or myself or whoever they were handing them off to, you know, and get like a verbal confirmation because like having kids on a farm, you know, 80 acres, you know, you can lose them in a hurry. Um, and there are a lot of dangers on a farm, um, but there's also a lot of opportunities for them to see things that they normally wouldn't do. We're, we're fortunate that, you know, our crew members like our kids as much as they, they do. And, and that also we've got some really great neighbors. We've got, Van Dykes to the north, and we've got Dewey across the street, and all of them help with various farm activities. And it's, you know, this is a more community-oriented farm than um, maybe some other farms, you know. And I think that by doing it this way, it's helped us be successful. It's helped Andy and I be able to focus on some of these other things. When you know, if we were focused, you know, solely on the kids, it would be more more challenging if we didn't have as many helping hands. When we started off, you mentioned that there was a substantial number of acres that you guys had put into fruit trees and into wildlife habitat. What was behind that? Uh, I think I think for me, one of the most enjoyable aspects of all of this is you know, my degree was in ecology in college, and I didn't feel like I ever used it until maybe six or seven years ago when we really in, 
like we really started to put um, wildlife habitat and beneficial insect habitat into the farm. Um, and the amount of time, like we've got the entire crew now are like rescuing predator beetles out of the packing shed or, you know, we're, we, we have kids, kids come out there and they're looking at praying mantids and doing some of these other things just because we have so many of these beneficial insects around. Um, it's been, it's been one of the, my favorite parts of this is seeing the wildlife come back to what used to be a corn and soybean field. When you talk about putting in like beneficial insect hedgerows, I think you said, what does that actually look like in your farm operation? So we put in, uh, we've probably planted about 4,000 native trees and shrubs. And we started out just by putting them in some of the buffer strips. And since then, we've actually planted shrubs right out in the middle of the farm. Um, And my grandpa, who was a conventional row cropper, when we did it, my aunt, Janet, who was helping to plant them, basically said something along the lines of he would be rolling over in his grave to see me planting shrubs in the middle of the cornfield. But I think he would be very on board now that now that we see what's come back to the farm or what has come to the farm for the first time. We've had wild turkeys. We have about 15 resident pheasants this year, uh, about three different species of snakes. And I didn't see any snakes the first few years. Uh, we're noticing that we used to have a lot of crow pressure on our, say our drip tape, like when we were trying to irrigate uh, carrots. And we have the drip tape laying on the surface. The crows will actually come and poke holes in the drip tape. Uh, for the spring carrots, that's really not a problem because we have enough red-winged blackbirds nesting now that they chase the crows away. <laughs> uh, we've, we've put in beetle banks, two different beetle banks, which are just uh, native bunch grasses planted on raised beds and left there uh, permanently. And it was an idea I got, again, from the Moses Conference when uh, Eric Mader talked from the Xerces Society about putting in beneficial insect habitat and we put in two of these and i don't really remember ever seeing any of these predatory ground nesting beetles prior to having done that and i'm not sure if it's because they weren't there or if if it's because i wasn't aware that they were there and now we actually have to take them out of the house and the packing shed on a daily basis because we have so many and you know i'm talking about those big black beetles that have the giant pinchers on the front uh, and then there are a number of other species. Some of them are kind of iridescent green. And there are a number of other black species. Uh, but we used to have to spray for Colorado potato beetles in our potatoes. We haven't had to do that for years. Uh, if we have potato beetles, I'll, you know, I'll scout the field. I'll notice them and I'll come back the next day or the day after. And they really don't seem to be any worse. And by about day four or five, you just see you know, carcasses of dead Colorado potato beetles because they've been eaten by these, by these ground nesting beetles. And so there, there are some, some farm scale things that can be done even on a vegetable farm to greatly increase the amount of predation of pest insects. I mean, you guys do all of this work to, to take care of and improve the land that you're on. But then you guys have had a couple of times where you've had pesticide drift onto your farm. Yeah, so the, both times it was a, a seed corn field that was to the north of us. Um, and the way that that works is the farmer is contracted to plant the seed corn, and then the seed corn company more or less takes over management of the field. And seed corn, especially the uh, genetically modified seed corn, um, is very, very pesticide dependent. And so they're spraying many, many more times per year than you would in a, in a regular conventional uh, corn field. And the first time it was an aerial application, and they, we were out in the field. And we're, you know, a farm of a certain scale and we're geographically located in one spot. So we're not spread out like some of the other farms that, um, that 
you know, maybe some of the other people you, you've interviewed are spread out more than we are. So if we're in the vegetable field, you can pretty much see the entire farm. And so if someone's spraying next to us, we're very aware of it. And so we saw the pest, we saw the plane spraying the seed corn and it, we saw it actually physically drift onto our farm. And so we're, we, we uh, reported it to the Iowa Department of Agriculture's Pesticide Bureau. They sent out their, um, uh, like their, the field person that takes your samples, they tested it and it came back positive. So we had to form um, a field Z for three years. So we, that was out of organic production from 09 to 2012. And then the second time it happened was in 2013. And again, it was a seed corn field. And they had, we'd had some discussion with this particular company and convinced them not to do aerial application because of the imprecise nature of it. And so they were going to only committed to only doing ground-based um, application but they had their contractor come and spray in the middle of the day when the wind was blowing straight at us. And so we had people in the field and it, you know, we noticed the smell and we could hear them. So I jumped in the car and drove around the corner and managed to get the applicator to stop, thankfully. But we lost organic certification on our asparagus from 2013 through 2016. So this is the first year, 2017. This was the first year that we had certified organic asparagus again, since before the drift incident. Um, and so again, we did the same thing. We called the pesticide zero and then um, they came out and took foliar samples and they did them along the asparagus field, like where we knew that we had the most likely contamination. And then they did like stepwise into the field beyond that. And the asparagus did come back positive. So we ended up dealing with the insurance company for the applicator. So the seed corn company is completely insulated from liability because they're hiring a contractor to do the application. And so it's the contractor's insurance, and we, over the course of a little over a year, um, hashed out um, a settlement. We did the same for the first, the first incident. So we've, we've since become more active in talking about these kinds of things, and we've done quite a bit of talking with people who have had drift incidents and kind of walk them through some of the things that they might need to know or what they might need to do in order to hopefully, one, not stress themselves out too much, but also get some sort of resolution. Earlier in the podcast, you asked us about record keeping and things like that. And um, I have an accounting background, which I'll joke about every now and then. There's a reason that Andy married me. But, you know, having that data, uh, I can't emphasize how important it is to be able to pull up that data when you need it like in times of a drift incident, um, because we didn't have to hire an attorney. We were able to give them our data, prove that it was, you know, authentic and be compensated for it. And so record keeping on so many levels, not only that, you know, do you know where you're tracking on a financial basis, but or we've had a, several people call us over the last few years and they say, we've got, we've been drifted on. And, you know, my first question is, is do you have records of past, you know, yields and prices? And a lot of the times the response is no. And so it's, it's really important to keep these things. We're certified organic. So, you know, in part, we keep these records to comply with those rules. But it's also come in handy, you know, when we're faced with a drift incident because we can easily respond and say, hey, look, this is our data. And we're not going to just kind of roll over and let, let you drift on us. What do you recommend that a grower do when they observe a drift incident happening? Um, I, I think the first the first thing to do would be to actually start preparing before you even witness it, and to have those conversations. If you're if you're a sensitive crop grower of any kind, so you could be a like a non-GMO row cropper, you could be having fruit trees or nut trees or vegetables. Have those conversations with your 
neighbors and let them know that, hey, I exist and I don't want you to drift on me and do it in a civil way so that, you know, there's not some sort of animosity if you can. But definitely be clear, you know, like I'm not going to allow drift to happen on my farm. And when you do recognize that it's happened, you know, again, be direct and like talk to the person and say, you know, I'm, I'm notifying the Department of uh, Agriculture and Land Stewardship if you're in Iowa or whatever corresponding agency there might be in other states. And I'm reporting this and we're going to follow it through, you know, and you can you can do it in as civilly a way as possible. You know, you don't have to be mean about it. Um, but you can be direct and communicate to them that that's what you're doing. Um, we do, like we're on the sensitive crops registry. I guess it's now Drift Watch. And we have signs up that, you know, say no spray and they're angled up towards the air so airplanes can see them. And we have conversations with our neighbors every year. You know, you do all those preventative things. But if something happens, you know, definitely have an action plan in place because it can be hugely costly if you if you don't. One of the other things that I've noticed following you guys over the last few years is that you're pretty involved in the advocacy for diversified and beginning farmers. What do you guys think that we need to do to increase more farms like, like, like you guys, like the farms that we are always talking to on the Farmer to Farmer podcast? Uh, so I think some of the things that are holding back um, beginning farmers in the United States, at least, are a lot of the, the things that are holding farmers back come from federal policy. And so in having a federally subsidized crop insurance program, which the Farm Bureau and some of the larger organizations have quite heavily lobbied for, uh, really railroads farmers into not being too terribly diverse um, and allows for some pretty poor land use patterns and inflates prices, especially in like the Corn Belt where we're subsidizing corn and soybean insurance. So I think one of the first things I would do would be to take a very serious look at the farm insurance program and make it actual risk-based instead of just kind of having a blanket. Um, we're going to pay 60% of your bill regardless of where you're farming your practices or how large you are. And perhaps some of the more marginal land would become more available to beginning renters um, kind of like before CRP came into being, one of the easiest ways to get into farming back in the 70s might be to rent the marginal ground and graze some dairy cows and, and have a small dairy. And I'm not saying that that's how we need to do it now, but like in order to gain the experience, you need to have a place that you can actually farm. And so maybe, maybe by revisiting the federal programs that affect land use, like the insurance subsidy, would be a very beneficial place to start. I would add that you know, when we're talking to beginning farmers, I, I usually start with, we're also beginning farmers. Um, you know, we're only 11 years into this, and it's not that long. And what we've seen is a trend of people doing a lot of speaking who don't necessarily have that long of a track record. And we've been to a lot of great conferences, and we've seen a lot of great speakers, and we've learned an immense amount from these people. But I would, I would say, you know, at, at each session and each conversation, you know, take it with a grain of salt and kind of look into that, that speaker. You know, you got you got a question like, here's this farm, you know, here's this farmer and they're presenting on their farm. Are they financially sustainable? Are they environmentally sustainable? And, and ask those questions because I think a lot of times what's happening is beginning farmers are, you know, they're getting introduced to maybe some of these new ideas or concepts. And it, it's kind of a false reality in a sense. And 
I, I don't think it's necessarily fair for them to receive this information because it's it's not necessarily accurate or realistic. You know, Andy and I will always attribute our success to, you know, having access to family land and having access to people in our community that have helped us get started. You know, um, there are so many different reasons as to why we've been successful. Um, and if you take away any one of them, we, we probably still, we wouldn't be here. You know, I mean, it's, it's a complex thing starting a farm like this. And one of the biggest pieces of advice we would give, we always give beginning farmers is to intern. You know, as you know, Andy interned on your farm, Chris, and he learned so much. And an internship experience can provide you with a wealth of knowledge about how to do things, but it might also give you the opportunity to get your toes wet and and try this kind of farming or try, you know, a different kind of farming and then realize, hey, I don't want to do that, (laughs) you know, which is just as valuable of a lesson before you sink a bunch of money into something that you might not end up liking. With that, we're going to turn to the lightning round, but first we're going to need a quick word from one more sponsor. This lightning round and the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by High Mowing Organic Seeds. When your livelihood depends on the quality of your seeds, be confident in your investment. When you grow organically, you need to know that your seeds were selected to perform in organic conditions. High Mowing offers professional quality seeds grown by organic farmers or organic farmers. Purchase your seeds from High Mowing before December 21st and receive a 10% discount through High Mowing's Community Supported Seeds Program. This program is just like a CSA. Customers purchase seed shares supporting an independently owned organic seed company. And as a thank you, you receive 10% off the value of your share. Shares can be purchased in any amount. For details, visit highmowingseeds.com slash save or call 866-735-4454 and also request a free copy of the 2018 High Mowing Organic Seeds Catalog. Andy, what's your favorite tool on the farm? It's kind of the old standby, but I'd have to go with a tractor. So if you can, if you can find a way to do it with a tractor, do it with a tractor. And Melissa, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Because of the hat I wear on the farm, I would say QuickBooks. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and are you using online the online version, or do you use the desktop version? I, I I have. I mean, it's backed up online, but it is not the online version because. When I looked into that, it's only two-thirds the platform, um, and I just couldn't take away pieces of the software that I'd been working with for years. So, Melissa, what's your favorite crop to grow? Oh, man, Brussels sprouts. I, I, I don't even have a favorite crop. I mean, every week when you live on a farm like this, there's something new to eat. And Andy, are you going to answer the, the, with the same thing, that there's something new every week, or do you have a favorite crop? Uh, I, I, feel, I do feel that way, but I'd have to say seedless watermelon. I can eat like a 10 pound watermelon in a sitting and seedless watermelon are one of the more challenging things I think to grow on a vegetable farm and especially organically. I think they they present some interesting challenges and when you have a good seedless watermelon, they're good. Melissa, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? My headspace was so focused on spreadsheets and things lining up um, when I first came to the farm. And um, I even put in an inventory system when we were at three acres into the accounting software, which turned into a mess. Don't do it. But the thing that I would I would tell myself then is to be okay with adapting. 
not everything is going to fit perfectly in a box. Um, and nothing's ever going to be perfect. Um, and that I think the sooner you can learn that adapting doesn't necessarily mean stress. It's just what that is. It's just adapting. Um, I think the easier life will be. And Andy, how about you? If you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? I think I would jump back before my move here in 2006. So after I worked for you, um, I went and stayed with my folks for a time and they have an, an acreage and I did a small market garden uh, on their property and the neighbors. And I think I would go back and try to convince myself that I needed to swallow my pride and intern for at least another year on at least one more farm. And I don't think I would have been very good at convincing myself at that time, but I, that's the advice I give myself. <laughs> awesome. Andy and Melissa, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for including us, Chris. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 140 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Dunham. That's D-U-N-H-A-M. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Rock Dust Local, the first company in North America specializing in local sourcing and delivery of the best rock dust and biochar for organic farming. And by CoolBot, allowing you to build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a window air conditioning unit. Save $20 on your CoolBot when you visit farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash CoolBot. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. And if you like the show, you can head on over to iTunes and leave us a review or tell us about it in the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. We're Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. You can support the show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. <laughs>